Welcome to Clinical Governance in Equine Practice, Practical Examples of Quality Improvement. The following session was recorded at Ashbrook Equine Hospital during the RCVS Knowledge Equine Roadshow, kindly sponsored by the Horse Race Betting Levy Board and accredited by the British Equine Veterinary Association. Pam Mosdale, Chair of RCVS Knowledge Quality Improvement Advisory Board and Acting Lead Assessor and Veterinary Advisor for the Practice Standards Group, discusses how checklists in other industries and human healthcare have been used to reduce errors and how this can be applied in a veterinary setting. Okay, hi everyone. Right, you might wonder, Tim very kindly introduced me in that way, but what most of you here probably know is that I actually started off in mixed practice in my career and finished up in small animal practice. So what the heck am I doing talking to equine vets? Well, I'm already wondering that myself. I've got major imposter syndrome today, but I think not only is um, QI something for the whole team, it's something for the whole profession. And I think the principles of it are exactly the same, whatever type of practice that you're in. So I'm gonna talk about checklists um, in, in other settings and how we can, you can apply them in equine practice settings too, and why we need them and, and um, barriers to implementing them. So we'll start off with errors. So the checklists are a way to reduce errors. Notice I don't say checklists or anything else, any other system is a way to prevent errors because preventing human errors is impossible. What we li like to try, what we want to need to try and do in practice is try and reduce errors. So we'll start off with errors in veterinary practice and we'll start off with one of those me too moments. I made that error. That was one of the, I made various errors during my career. We could probably talk about those for the next hour if we wanted to. But this is one of the one I probably remember one of the most and one of the worst errors I made when um, operating in the middle of the night on a German Shepherd with a splenic tumour, um, which was blood everywhere. Um, basically, I, we had every, just about every pair of hemostats and forceps in the whole practice out, the nurse and I, and unfortunately one of them didn't go back in the cupboard and remained in the dog. So that's, that's one of my errors. I remember that distinctly. It's, um, but we all make errors, don't we? I don't know if anybody here think, feels they haven't made any errors, and if you haven't, great for you, but, um, but I, th I, think, I think we all do. And errors can be made up of those human errors. Um, of failures of systems, and I'm going to talk a bit more about systems and how important it is to have systems in place, because systems can help to reduce errors, and also lack of communication. Communication is key, isn't it, in the veterinary, in veterinary profession? Just about every... I did get involved for a few years in complaints investigation for, for RCVS, and during that time I would say personally, based on my own personal experience, not a scientific thing, but I would say that 99.95% of... of um, th issues that finish up with complaints to the college are to do to communication somewhere along the line. So communication failures, they happen, don't they? And I think they happen more um, as teams get bigger and bigger and as there are different team members and as there are maybe um, locums or people who are not used to working together in different branches, I think that that can cause communication issues. Also, um, having practice culture sometimes where people don't feel they can say things and speak up and that's very much part of the no blame thing that Lewis was talking about, people feeling empowered to be able to speak up and also having good communication systems within the practice so that practice people in practice can use closed loop communication. They do that in the NHS, I don't know if any of you have um, had any encounters with the NHS recently, I have because my mother was ill for quite a while um, and very often when nurses are told to do something they'll repeat back to the doctor exactly what they told them to do. 
exactly which medicine and what dose and by what route etc and I think that's something we could usefully do in small animal, in practice or practice equine practice as well is actually use that closed loop you feel a bit silly doing it to start with but it does mean your communication is accurate System failures, not having systems in place, and we'll talk about other systems as well as guidelines, uh, which Tim will talk about later, and protocols and checklists, not having those systems in place. If we do have the systems, not using them. Not having enough team members, team members are not used to working together. And then the general thing of, of, that we all have all the time in practice, don't we, of basically, we're in a rush. Time pressure, time pressure is one, one of the biggest issues. So those human errors then, mine was, I'm sure, a human error. Um, I, I missed out a step in a procedure, <laughs> um, a very important step um, of checking that we had all the instruments. And it's easy to miss out steps during complex procedures. It's easy to become distracted um, when, during procedures, especially if something that wasn't the case in my mistake, but I, I can't blame being distracted. But you could be if you'd just been talking to a client or a client had just been complaining about something on the phone and then you start doing a procedure, that's still in your mind. It's distracting. Pressure from owners can be distracting. Oh, this owner's a nightmare. We must be careful to, to do this properly. Um, and then HALT. Have we all heard of the HALT campaign? Basically, if you're hungry, if you're angry or stressed, if you're running late, and aren't we all, and if you're tired, which I certainly was in my middle of the night episode, mistakes are more likely to happen. So human errors will always happen. We all make mistakes all the time. What we need to do is try and put some systems in place to reduce the incidence of the errors. So checklists then. Checklists are a system to try and reduce errors. Why do we need checklists? Well, um, this picture should show you that basically we all have a working memory and we have a long-term memory. The working memory is what, at the moment I'm thinking, what's the next slide, what else do I have to say? That's my, my um, short-term working memory. And then I've got my long-term memory where hopefully all, the, all this stuff is safely tucked away. Um, and in normal circumstances, you have the input and your, you, your working memory and your long-term memory communicate with each other. You come up with reasonable, rational decisions. Everything's fine. When you're stressed, when input gets too much or too stressful, that communication system between working memory and long-term memory doesn't work properly. The working memory shrinks, out, then output comes into gets freezing. You get this inability to make decisions. So checklists are a simple system for trying to keep people on board with all the steps and not get to the stressed and freezing position um, where memory doesn't work. Have you, have you had those things happen to you where you're stressed and suddenly you can't decide about something? I have anyway. Um, so checklists are one way to reduce errors. So what can we do to try and reduce errors? Well, we can um, we can ha have use checklists and protocols and guidelines. We can report incidents, and I totally agree with Lewis that near misses are absolute gold dust. We definitely should be um, reporting near misses because we can learn from something that where something bad didn't happen. Um, we need to have good communication, we need to have this mythical no-blame culture, which um, would be great if, if we had it and, and we all have to work towards. Uh, but also, we can, we can learn from other settings. We don't have to uh, make all our own mistakes, we can learn from other settings. We can learn from other industries and, and from human medicine, as, uh, as John just said. So, this is one of my little things I like to bang on about. Basically, we can't prevent human error, but we can improve systems of work. And I don't think it's been a particular priority in the veterinary profession in the past. I think the practices will spend lots of money sending their um, members of their team on CPD, 
They'd also spend lots of money going to BSAVA or London Vet Show or Beaver Congress and buying lots of sparkly, shiny new kit. But they don't spend money or time on instituting systems of work. And systems of work, I hope I'm going to show you in a minute, can be just as powerful as new bits of kit and, and CPD and clinical CPD. I think the, the non-clinical CPD hasn't been valued quite, quite as much in the past. Hopefully that's different now. So we said we can learn from safety culture in other industries. Well, uh, we said about reporting near misses and errors. Well, in the um, aviation industry, it's compulsory to report errors and near misses. They have to do that, and they learn from them. And this is a, a little poster from um, a colleague of mine whose husband's in the RAF, and basically this, uh, they have this up there because this guy's just crashed his plane, um, and the other guy comes up to him and says, oh, you're unlucky. That same thing happened to me in the same circumstances yesterday, but I didn't crash. And the first guy says, well, why didn't you report it? Then maybe I wouldn't have crashed today. So reporting what we do is reporting errors and near misses is absolutely um, essential, really. So when you go on your holidays, when you went on your, off on your summer trip this summer, you know, when Tim went off on his trip to, to Australia, he's just been on, then hopefully the pilot didn't walk around the plane, kick the tyres a bit and jump in and set off. Pilots on planes go through checklists. Aviation checklists are specific to each particular aeroplane and are changed according to things that happen, according to errors and near misses that happen. And they are read-do checklists. So one person reads them out and the other person does whatever the action is. And so they're a very um, powerful communication tool. Now I was talking about this to one of my neighbours who's a paramedic. And I was asking him, he works with lots of different people because he's always changing his shift. So I said to him, how do you become, what happens when you, when you start a, a, your shift on the ambulances? And he said, what happens is they have a checklist. And first of all, one of them reads out to check every bit of item is on the ambulance. So they read it out, is, have we got this? The other person says, yes, yes, I go through it. Then they swap the checklist and the second person reads out this, a different part of the checklist, which is, is it working? So they go through all the bits of kit as well and make sure they're working. So at the end of that, not only do they know that they have all the right kit on the ambulance and it's all working, they've become a team. That communication between the two of them, it's not just about the filling in the checklist, it's about becoming a team and having communication. And that's why that's the same principle in, in, a, in, um, in aviation too, that they have these readout checklists. So what about in human medicine then? Well, the start of checklists was right back in 2001, and Peter Provenost at John Hopkins University in the States was the father of medical checklists. And basically, they had an issue in that hospital with um, central line infections. So um, he drew up what you all, I hope you can see it from where you're sitting, but what you, I hope you can all see is a very, very simple checklist. Wash your hands, clean the skin of the patient, use sterile drapes, wear the PPE, the hat mask gloves, and then when you finish, put a sterile dressing on. Simple, isn't it? Five extremely simple steps. Before he introduced this checklist, he um, sent people around to watch what was happening. And he found that 30% of the time, one of those steps wasn't being followed. So then he introduced the checklist, and most importantly, not just introduced the checklist, but empowered the nurses to, that if one of these steps didn't happen, they stopped. So if they could have been the head of surgery, but if they didn't wash their hands, no, we can't go any further till you've washed your hands. If they didn't wear the right PPE, stop. And it, that was the important part, it was empowering the nurses. And basically, their, their infections at that 
time fell from 11% down to zero. So that was the power of just a little piece of paper and a very, very simple checklist, wasn't it? So going on a little bit from that, how many of you have read Checklist Manifesto, a book? Very good. Um, once you read it, I think you get very um, passionate about checklists. And it's a very, um, I would totally recommend it. It's a very easy book to read. It's not, um, not a heavy book. You can read it on your holidays. Um, and basically, World Health Organization, we're really concerned about um, deaths following surgical complications. Um, and, and they wanted to do something about it. And it was actually aimed in initially more at third world countries. And Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon from Boston in the States, was involved in the group that set up the surgical safety checklist, which was basically a way of teams communicating and thinking about issues that, that, were, get, that were going to happen. And this was the original surgical safety checklist from, from um, World Health Organization. So right at the beginning, before the anesthetic, Make sure it's the right patient, always a good idea. Make sure you know exactly which, which site. Um, have we got the, is the anaesthetic machine all okay? Have we got the monitors, are they fine? Are there any allergies? Is there any particular risks, etc.? <coughs> then, again, before we actually do the skin incision, this is the bit which veterinary practices don't like. The team members introduce each other, themselves to each other. Now, I can see that in big hospitals, um, it's important to do that, really important. In the NHS, they, they, they do that. So they would say, you know, I'm Pam, I'm the surgeon, I'm Tim, I'm the anaesthetist, whatever. Um, but pra some practices don't like that part, they feel a bit silly. And so I think if you don't want to vocalise that part, fair enough, but um, some practices um, will do that. We've got bigger teams. But again, check the right patient. You can't do that often enough, can you? Check if they're supposed to have antibiotics. And then the surgeon should be thinking ahead, what are the anticipated things that could go wrong in this procedure and have we got all the kit or everything we need if that happens. Um, the anaesthetist should be doing the same and the nurses should be checking everything's, or every, everything's sterile, etc. And have we got the right things and have we got any imaging that we might need. And then again, before the patient leaves the operating theatre, after the, after the procedure, again, we'll go through what needs going to happen afterwards, what's the, condi the, um, the, 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 the uh, factors for recovery, have we labelled any specimens, because those getting lost can be quite traumatic, are all the bits of kit still working? That used to drive me mad in my own practice when I'd say, oh, come with a suction, and they'd go, no, it's not working. <laughs> oh, what do you mean it's not working? Oh, it didn't work two weeks ago when we used it. Why haven't we fixed it then? <laughs> uh, so, you know, at the end of the op, anything like that. But most importantly, as I say, what are the concerns for recovery and where do we go from here? Um, so that's the che checklist. That's just a piece of paper. To go through that, one minute for each of those things, three minutes maximum, okay? Um, so they did this in 2009, the pilot study, um, of eight hospitals around the world, mostly in third world countries. And these were the results they got. Hopefully you can all see the screen. So deaths fell 47%, complications 36%, infections 48%. 78% of team members thought it had prevented an error. But the last one, I think, is the final evidence. 93% of the team members said if they were having an op, they would like somebody to use a checklist. Now, that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Those results. That's from a piece of paper and three minutes of somebody's time and some communication. If you could go and 
to um, Beaver or London Vet Show and buy a bit of kit that would reduce deaths by 47% or get a new medicine that would reduce infections by 48%, you'd do it, wouldn't you? So a checklist is a simple way of achieving those effects um, and I think should be thought about by, by all practices and used wherever possible. And the first strange thing was that Atta Gawande, after this happened, he, he went back to his, um, to his um, very smart hospital in Boston and um, decided they should introduce the checklists. And his colleagues were like, oh no, we're surgeons. <laughs> we don't need this. Well, of course, he pers persevered and empowered the nurses, etc. Uh, because again, with that checklist, the same as with the other checklists, the nurses are empowered to stop the procedure if the checklist not read out. And it made a big difference there as well. And I know um, veteran from veterinary practices, a couple of ones I know, one practice has a little cover, sterile cover that goes over the scalpel blade and it's not allowed to be removed until the, um, the second part of the checklist has been done. Another, I was talking to some people on Tuesday and one of the head, head nurse told me that they don't, they don't give the surgeon a blade until the checklist has been done. So, you know, there are ways to stop people um, ignoring the checklist. Um, how many of you use checklists already? Great, lovely. And do you find them useful? And do you actually read out the, do you actually introduce yourselves? Do you do that bit? We have lots of visitors, so we introduce new visitors. And that's really useful, isn't it? That's a really good point because you might have other people in the theatre. So, and in an emergency, you need to know who, who are the, um, the, the anaesthetist and the surgeon and who are students and who are maybe visitors who you're not going to ask to suddenly do something. Um, so I think, I mean, I know people have systems like RVC, they have different coloured hats in the small animal um, theatre for, for different, or, or sometimes names on hats, but also introducing people does that part of it. Okay, so as we say, three times it's done. The important thing I, t I think to take home from it is, although it's a piece of paper, it's not just about ticking boxes. It is mo more than anything else, a, a communication tool. Um, you could actually not fill it in as long as you read it out and listened to the answers to all the questions, but it's all about teamwork and discipline um, and putting systems in place. And implementing it's important how you do that. WHO produced a, um, an implementation tool when, the, when they implemented it. Sorry, that's the wrong order. So if you're going to introduce checklists, um, I think it's always a good idea if you're going to introduce surgical checklists to audit your complication, rate of complications first of all. Definitely involve the team. Teams hate it, don't they, when something just gets plonked on them from above and like do this or do this. You've got to let people talk about it and discuss it and see what, um, what, they, think, what they think the issues might be before you even start. The leader needs to adopt it. If the senior people in the practice are not doing it, then it's not going to work. Everybody's got to be doing it consistently and the, the senior people have got to be doing it. Um, they've got to be, it's good to have checklist champions and it's good to empower those team members to actually be able to stop people if they don't use it. And then you must be um, um, open to feedback because then have a meeting, I want to be using it for a little bit and find out if you're using it or not, audit if you're using it or not, and then find out why not and what are the barriers and what do people not like about it and then modify it. You've got to be able and prepared to modify it according to the feedback. So an ideal checklist should be of any sort, whether it's surgical or not, should be short, simple, evidence-based and a good one for me, clear large type. So I don't have to get my glasses and squint at it. Um, checklists don't work if they're too complex, too long, 
not introduced properly and particularly if you suddenly go oh that's great checklists let's have some checklists and introduce 10 checklists next week that's not going to work everybody's going to get um, checklisted out basically checklist overload so um, they must be introduced properly um, and, and monitor they use monitored otherwise that's not going to really work audit the use of checklists definitely whether the checklist used yeah you could audit just whether it's used yes or no or you could audit whether every bit of it's filled in if you're going to keep paper records of your checklists you could have um, laminated wipe clean checklists in which case you could audit them by just taking mobile phone photos now and again um, I went to a farm practice the only farm practice I've been that was using a checklist they had a laminated checklist which was attached to the lid of the Caesar kit along with um, the correct sort of pen, uh, pen that you could wipe off attached to it and the instruction to the vets was that they filled, they filled it in and they took a photo of it and then emailed it back to their boss afterwards so they had a record for each, for each procedure. And we talked about this at the previous equine meeting about um, individual people using checklists and there was a vet there who, was, who did single-handed uh, um, single procedures and she said it was really useful for her because there was nobody else to remind her when things went wrong. So a checklist is useful even if you're out in the field by yourself. So vets now um, in, in small animal emergency procedures audited the use of their surgical checklist. Um, when they first introduced it in 2017, it was used 30% of the time. By March 2019, it was up to 83% and probably is higher now. I must ask them for an update. But, um, and they're doing it in emergency procedures. Because when I talked to practices about who use checklists, um, before I did the talk, people were saying, yeah, well, we use them for routines, but we don't use them in emergencies. And in emergencies is actually the time when you really need it, when things are more likely to go wrong. Um, that was an emergency procedure of mine in the middle of the night, and we definitely didn't have checklists then. Um, so, and nurses generally like them. I think nurses generally like them even more than vets do, to be honest. Um, but lots of people have said how they have saved them from... Um, from various errors but the other the downside is that what can happen is you can get too blase and just go yeah 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 and just take everything so we're just going to if we can play a video let's hope we can this is how not to do the surgical safety checklist from the NHS
no real patients were harmed in the making of this video. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's, that's how not to do it. And I think sometimes people have reported to me that in veterinary practice it can get a little bit like that. Uh, yeah, we haven't got time for this, we're too busy. So um, yeah, in the, in the NHS they're, they're quite a way on with this now. Um, Atul Gawande has written some more um, articles about it, but basically, as he said, if you just put these things onto people um, and say you must, must do this without training, without support, without feedback, you don't get the same results as you do if you, if you, if you put it in with, with all those things. And it's all about teamwork and leadership, not just about using the checklist. And I think um, one area that checklists could develop um, in veterinary practice would be che specific checklists for emergency situations, like anaesthesia checklists, where this is what to do if this happens. And I, I think there's lots of developments can happen with, with um, checklists. So what are the barriers then? And we've talked about the barriers for QI. What are the barriers for implementing checklists? Well, time. People think it wastes time. But as I say, it should only be three minutes. Reluctance to change. People not, you know, not just wanting to carry on as they are. Hierarchy. Now, there's another video, which I'm not going to play because it's very long, called Just a Routine Operation. But if any of you get a chance to watch this YouTube video, it's from Martin Bromley, who's an airline pilot, who, um, whose wife unfortunately died in a routine procedure and who um, started the move, really, or, or encouraged the move in, in human medicine towards he looking at human factors and systems rather than, than just blaming individuals. But in this op, what happens is... Uh, well basically they can't intubate the lady at all, they can't get an airway. Um, there's, there's experienced surgeons and anaesthetists, um, they spend about 15 minutes trying to intubate this lady, um, they can't uh, do it at all. Um, the nurses realise what's going on, one nurse brings through the tracheostomy kit, they ignore her, another nurse comes in and says I've booked a bed in intensive care because you can see what the SATs are, and they say we don't need it. Um, they s decide to abandon the operation, they leave her, she doesn't recover. And I think it was an example of hierarchy that the nurses felt they couldn't speak up, but also tunnel vision from the, from the surgeon and the anaesthetist because they were so busy concentrating and there was a very similar airline incident right back at the beginning of human factors in aviation where a pilot was so busy concentrating on the fact that they couldn't put the wheels down properly for a landing they failed to notice they were running out of fuel and then the plane crashed anyway because it ran out of fuel. So we, in, a bit like the, the picture with the checklist we get this um, thing where there's too much input, too much stress, and then we freeze and, and don't necessarily do the actions we should do. But hierarchy can be a barrier to implementing checklists. Some people don't want the nurses to be empowered to tell them they can't carry on. And leadership's really important. So this brings me on to um, talking about um, technical and non-technical skills. Now we all, when we're at um, university and college, we all learn technical skills, don't we? We spend a lot of time learning, learning the basic technical skills. And then, um, but what we don't really learn, and I think that some medical schools are starting to do this, I'm not sure if any vet schools are, are you doing this at Nottingham at all, doing non, anything about non-technical skills? Yes, we're doing a lot of non-technical Perfect, skills. good. Well, but non-technical skills are what we didn't learn at university, and hopefully we've picked some of us have picked them up as we've gone along. But about things like being aware of situations, situation awareness, which didn't happen in, in the situation I just described to you about the intubation, um, decision-making, communication, teamwork, leadership, 
Um, and by leadership, I don't mean practice management or managers, I mean somebody leading in a clinical sense, and it doesn't have to necessarily be the surgeon. Um, and task management, how we're doing things. I think, so I've put these skills are not taught, but I'm obviously wrong that we are teaching them now, but they haven't been. I think you'd agree they haven't been taught in the past, have they? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a really important thing and I think it's a really important thing of our, of our role and a really important thing for us to think about because it's not enough to just be good technically. We've got to have those, those other things happening. We've got to be able to know what to do in a situation. So, um, checklists are really important from that because if you think about a checklist, situation awareness, it asks you, what might happen? What might go wrong here? Have we got the kit if it does? Will, will there be blood loss? Have we got, uh, will there be fluids? Do we need more fluids? It, uh, it encourages teamwork by people introducing each other. It, talks, it gets you to communicate most definitely. As we said, checklists are all communication tools. And it's involved in decision making, in thinking what, what you're going to do next, what's going to happen when, when the patient leaves the theatre, etc. So I think checklists, again, as well as being a bit of paper, are a good way of demonstrating those, those non-technical skills that we all need and encouraging us to use those non-technical skills. So checklists are an important part of safety culture. Leadership is an important part of safety culture, like I said, and not, not, not management, but leadership. Um, has anybody here done the RCVS Jenner Academy leadership course? Do you all know about it? Yeah, it's, um, it was, the original pilot was free, apparently now, um, if you do what, go right through to the third stage, it, I think it's about £70 for the third stage, but the rest of it's all free. 30 hours of free CPD, and it's, um, it's really, um, I found it really good, the bits, I, I've only done two parts, I haven't done the third part yet, but um, basically it's like, a bit like the archers, you all know what the, uh, the archers is, <laughs> yeah, um, that it's all like veterinary archers, there's all these scenarios of, um, there's, a, there's a farm practice and an equine practice and small, a couple of small animal practices and things happen in the practices and it's a little podcast that you listen to and then the podcast directs you to think about certain things and then there's reading that goes with it etc. So I found it really, really useful and it covers a lot of these things. Um, um, a lot of those non-technical skills I think are covered in that leadership course. Um, so using checklists should reduce the incidence of the never events. NHS says there are, the NHS defines things as never events which are preventable safety in incidents that should never occur if it, the preventative measures have been implemented. So my admission from the beginning is, was a never event, that should never have occurred. If we had any kind of system of counting instruments in and out, it shouldn't have happened. Um, wrong site surgery is a never event as well. You shouldn't operate on the, or, or nerve block the incorrect leg of the horse or whatever. It, those, those are never events. And um, in the NHS, they have to be reported in a certain way, but I think they're things we should think about too. Things that we should be able to prevent those. Accidents will always happen, but we should be able to have a good go at trying to prevent those incidents. So I say communication's part of safety culture. Like I said earlier, the closed loop communication's a really good idea. Again, going back to aviation, I didn't know this till recently, pilots are not allowed to have any non-essential communication below 10,000 feet. So while they're taking off and landing, thank goodness, they're concentrating entirely on the job in hand. After 10,000 feet, if they want to chat about anything, what happened last night or where they're going on the holidays, that's fine, but no non-essential communication. And I think there was a study of human anaesthetists that they, their brain activity is massively more during induction and recovery and not and at a much lower level during maintenance phase of the anaesthesia. So I think, um, you know, that communication is really important in practices and 
lack of communication or teams that don't feel they can communicate and have hierarchies and barriers are not, are not as safe. Human factors is in what, what is touched on briefly in, um, in medicine. They, they think about human factors a lot. Um, and it's looking at how people work and trying to give them working environments that are more suited to how they work, um, are better designed, you work better if you're working in a good system. Um, and, and doing things like uh, the dispensary is a good place for like work systems, having certain medicines only in certain places, having um, hypertonic saline separate to all the rest so it isn't given by mistake when you thought you were giving um, Hartmann's or something, or keeping it in a separate place or putting red bandage around it, having it marking um, certain medicines, keeping them in different places. Um, all those things are, are the sort of things that can, the systems. Has anybody seen one of these um, automatic dispensaries? I should have put a picture in. Cubics automatic dispensaries. Yeah, Malcolm's seen one because he's seen one in a PSS assessment probably. They're basically, you type in the name of the medicine, there are lots of little doors and lots of lights, and the light comes on of the medicine whose name you've typed in, the door opens, you get that medicine, dispense it, put it back. And they have um, fingerprint um, controlled, controlled drug sections as well. So, okay, that's a big expensive thing to get, but it's a system. It's a system to help people to make less dispensing errors, because I think lots of the near misses you'll record will be dispensary errors. That's where a lot of them happen. So anything like that to help people. So have to have a systems approach, that's the thing. We, it's really almost impossible to modify human, well not impossible, but very difficult to modify human behavior. But we can modify systems, we can try and make systems better. Um, so instead of trying to get rid of errors, we can try and make systems that make errors less likely to happen. And this should be done like through the whole organization. And really it means that we can then say, instead of saying, you, you failed, you're bad, you can say, our system failed, we need a better system. Um, and there's lots of examples of that. I was talking to a practice only a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me that they had issues with two doors from their um, kennels to the outside world, from their small practice, two doors from the, in fact it was a university, two doors from the, from the kennels to the outside world. And they had loads of people coming in and out, including loads of students. So they had tried and tried, they've got protocols up, they've got things up saying, do not open both these doors at once. They've had done lots of training protocols, still happened. So then they fitted a klaxon. So that if you open both doors at once, the klaxon went off really, really loud. That works. Systems can be really helpful. So there's lots of things I'm sure within your own practices where you could think of systems that would help to try and prevent errors. Um, definitely, you know, labeling medicines in certain ways. Um, definitely. So protocols, guidelines, and checklists are systems, as are, see, as are team training, doing, uh, equipment design, labeling, packaging. I mean, some medicines, I mean, they, you know, some drug companies label, um, make the packaging almost identical for different sizes, and so it's so easy to, to grab the, the wrong size, or for, or for drugs with similar, I mean, you probably, um, or there, was, there was some, uh, it's not there now, but there was, there was a medicine which um, basically, all this company, all these company's medicines used to start with the same three letters, they, they were Noracarp, they've changed it now, which is great, but it was so easy with drop-down computer systems to, to give the um, non-steroidal instead of the antibiotic dispense out. 
Right, so getting back to the surgical safety checklist, here's some papers, including an equine one from EVJ. Um, none of those papers, what those papers report different levels of how much checklists help, but none of them say that they actually could, checklists make things worse. So why wouldn't you try it? That's, that's what I would say if it's not going to make the situation worse. Uh, oh, yeah, those the comments were under that. Um, so in veterinary practice, there's also um, AVA anaesthetic safety checklists. I think these are aimed more at small animal. Are there equine versions of these two? The AVA ones? Um, right. Oh, perfect. No, there you go. Right, well, again, that's um, like uh, just about the anaesthesia rather about the whole surgical procedure. But again, it can be laminated and filled in and wiped off afterwards or whatever. It's doing it that's the important thing rather than recording it. And then before this talk, I thought I'd better see what equine practices are doing. So um, this is um, from Tim's practice about they, they um, make notes of swabs in and out and instruments in and out on a whiteboard in the theatre. This is the donkey sanctuary who kindly shared with me their um, checklist for pre-op planning, theatre setup, and post-op that they are using. Tim also shared with me a uh, equipment checklist for, for um, catheter care. Some practices like uh, Rossdale's are using, and you are using a modified version of the World Health Organization yes. surgical yes. safety yes. checklist. Good. Good. And do you um do you do you read it out? Does somebody um, read it so out? Yes. Um, so um, there's there's three sections. Um, there's um, the anaesthetist um, section. There's the surgeon section. There's the theatre nurse section. And the anaesthetist actually reads it all out for everyone. Okay, and then um, I think one of, the, one of the features of checklists will be in human medicine they have checklists that are all on apps and they can combine them together so there are three or four different checklists for different things and if they, if, if they go over a certain trigger point it comes up red as a risk for sepsis or something like that so I think there's a future um, from our point of view to combine checklists combine checklists with dosage um, with dosages this is from one of our PSS assessors that if they're only starting rabbits in their practice um, if you put the weight to the rabbit, it'll give you not only the, the dose, but also the timing of when you, get, when you give each um, medicine. So I think tech checklists are also really useful in some other scenarios. I think um, case handover is another place where checklists, that's another place, isn't it, where somebody's tired because they've been on call at night, somebody else is taking over and they've got lots of things to absorb, and it's easy to just get bogged down with it all, whereas if you have a, an actual focused checklist of what things you're going to, going to uh, ask, and even um, fill, fill in, that's um, a really useful thing. So I think there's lots of other places for, uh, where checklists can be useful. So thank you very much. For free courses, examples, and templates for quality improvement in your practice, please visit our quality improvement pages on our website at rcvsknowledge.org.